I was given this by a friend. It's a legend, of course. On the first day, God created the cow. And God said, you must go to the field with the farmer all day long and suffer under the sun. Have calves and give milk to support the farmer. I will give you a lifespan of 60 years. The cow said, well, that's kind of a tough life. You want me to live for 60 years? Let me have 20 years and I'll give back the other 40. So God agreed. On the second day, God created the dog and God said, sit all day by the door of your house and bark at anyone who comes in or walks past. I'll give you a lifespan of 20 years. The dog said, well, that's too long to be barking. Give me 10 years and I'll give back the other 10. So God sighed, but agreed. On the third day, God created the monkey and God said, entertain people, do monkey tricks, make them laugh. I'll give you a 20-year lifespan. The monkey said, how boring, monkey tricks for 20 years? I don't know. The dog gave you back 10, so that's what I'll do too, if that's okay. And God agreed again. And on the fourth day, God created man. God said, eat, sleep, play, enjoy, do nothing, just enjoy, enjoy. I'll give you 20 years. Man said, what? Only 20 years? No way. Lord, tell you what, I'll take my 20 and the 40 the cow gave back and the 10 the dog gave back and the 10 the monkey gave back. That makes 80 years. Okay. Okay. God said, you got a deal. So that's why for the first 20 years we eat, sleep, play, enjoy, and do nothing. For the next 40 years, we slave in the sun to support our family. For the next 10 years, we do monkey tricks to entertain our grandchildren. (laughs) And for the last 10 years, we sit in the front of the house and bark at everybody. (laughs) Truth is, truth is, God has much better plans for our lives than that. God has a potential that he wants us all to reach, a plan for our lives that includes giving him glory and in the midst, finding fulfillment for it. However, we can fail to be all that God wants us to become. Now, as we're reading the book of Isaiah and we come to this chapter, it it sort of seems out of place in that. We've been taught about the atonement in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. That ushers us right into chapter 54 and 55, which tells us about the joys of the kingdom to come. Then it seems like here we have the prophet Isaiah reverting back to a time of Israel's rebellion, sin, and unfaithfulness. And so in reading it, we wonder... Is he writing randomly because it doesn't seem to flow? Answer, not at all. You see, what is happening is Isaiah the prophet is writing because God knows that the children of Judah and some of those of Israel would be hearing of this prophecy and even having it read to them while they are in a captivity for 70 years. 
they would have heard about the atonement mentioned in Isaiah 53. They would have heard about the joys of the future kingdom spoken about in 54 and 55. In hearing the future plans that God had for the nation based upon the atonement in Isaiah 53, they'd be wondering, well, then what are we doing here in captivity? How do we get into this mess? If the Messiah coming will atone for sin, and if God has incredible plans for us, why would we be here suffering for our sin in captivity? So Isaiah will give them the answer. Here is the potential God wanted you to reach, and this is where you have failed to reach that potential. It's sort of like what the United States of America did after September 11, 2001. We looked at the rubble at Ground Zero, and so many people scratched their heads and said, I don't get it. Why would somebody do this to us? Where have we gone wrong? And it caused some soul-searching, at least temporarily, at a spiritual level. What's going on in our nation? And so, the prophet continues his prophecy. And he speaks looking backward at where Israel went wrong. Thus says the Lord, Keep justice, do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Here I am, a dry tree. Israel failed when it came to the foreigner, the outsider. You see, it was always God's intention that the nation of Israel be raised up as a light to the Gentile. To teach outsiders, foreigners, Gentiles, those who didn't know the God of Israel that they would come to know the God of Israel through the witness of the Jewish nation. You remember when God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. And he said, I have blessed you. I have called you. And you are not only to be blessed, but you are to be a blessing. I will make you a blessing. And in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But what happened is, rather than being the light that would introduce foreign countries to the true God, Israel degenerated and followed after false gods, so that the foreigner was forgotten. And they didn't have the witness that God wanted to bring forth. Now, notice the mention in the text, not only of the foreigner, but in verse 3, the eunuch. Nor let the eunuch say, here I am, a dry tree. Eunuchs were, according to the book of Deuteronomy, to be kept out of the assembly of the Lord. That was under the law of Moses. However, when Solomon built his temple, and in 1 Kings chapter 8 is that beautiful prayer of dedication, he anticipates the time when the foreigner will come in. 
and come to the temple and pray. And Solomon says, Lord, when somebody from afar, when a foreigner comes to this place and lifts up his prayer to you here in heaven and grant their request. So even Solomon anticipated that foreigners, outsiders, Gentiles would come. That was God's heart. Not only to have a plan and a purpose for the Jew, but the plan and the purpose was to show God's plan for other nations, bringing them in as well. Later on, after Solomon's temple, and the Jews went into captivity and they came back, much later, just around the New Testament time, King Herod rebuilt the temple and he enlarged it. And in the temple, there were courts and there were walls of separation. For instance, there was the Holy of Holies, the Holy Place. There was the court of the priests. Outside of that, the court of the men. Outside of that, the court of the women. And outside of that, around the periphery, we'd call it the nosebleed section, was the court of the Gentiles. Yes, foreigners, Gentiles, were allowed in that Jewish place of worship. However, there was a wall of separation that separated the court of the Gentiles from any of the inner courts. And there were inscriptions that were posted around the periphery of that wall in both Latin as well as Hebrew and Greek that said, no foreigner is allowed beyond the barricade that surrounds the sanctuary at the penalty of death, saying, you are responsible for your ensuing death if you cross this line. So the temple, you see, was all about separation. And whenever somebody in those days wanted to proselytize, become Jewish, they went through all of the rituals, they were said to be a proselyte of the gate. A proselyte of the gate. And the Jewish rabbi said of the Gentile who was coming to understand the God of Israel, he was said to be brought near. We're bringing you near by this ritual, by these acts. Now, with that in mind, you remember what Paul the Apostle writes when he speaks to the Ephesians in chapter 3 and says, For he himself is our peace, who has broken down the middle wall of partition and made us both one, Jew and Gentile. He has brought us near by the blood of Christ. There's no more courts. There's no more walls. There's not the nosebleed section for the foreigner. God is saying, I'll bring you all in, which happened at the death of Christ. The veil of the temple was torn in two. By the way, I read something interesting that said after Jesus rose and ascended, the Jews sewed the veil back up. Isn't that just like man to do? God says, let's take away the boundaries. Man says, let's construct a few. We like the religious aspect of our approach. But God was saying, I want to bring you near. That was his intention from the beginning. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and holds fast my covenant. Even to them, I will give in my house and within my walls a place 
and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also, the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. When the Jews were taken captive by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., they were faced with an obvious problem. They left their temple. Now they're in a foreign land, and because there is no temple in this foreign place, they were unable to practice any kind of ceremonial law. They couldn't bring animals. They couldn't sacrifice them. So they were prohibited from keeping ceremonial law. So an interesting development occurred during the 70-year Babylonian captivity. They called it the synagogos, the synagogue, the gathering place. That developed during the Babylonian captivity. And since they couldn't practice ceremonial law in a foreign country, they could only read and comment and teach the laws of Moses and think about exactly what they were to mean and how to apply them to our lives. That's how the synagogue developed. They could, in that foreign land, practice the Sabbath. However, even though they could practice the Sabbath... Part of the problem is they didn't. Some of them didn't learn the lesson. They were in a place of idolatry and some kept practicing idolatry and neglecting God's Sabbath laws. By the way, one of the things that got them into captivity in the first place was a perpetual neglect of the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath laws regards not only a day, one day a week, the seventh day of the week, After God finished his creation on the seventh day, he rested and he told the children of Israel to keep that as a perpetual sign of that covenant. But not only was there a day, but there was a Sabbath year. Every seventh year was the sabbatical year. The land was to lay fallow. Certain debts were to be remitted. Then there were seven cycles of those Sabbath years so that At the end of 49 years, seven cycles, the 50th year was called the year of Jubilee. And that's where the land goes back to its original owner. Every debt is canceled. And it's a wonderful time, a year-long celebration. Because Israel, for 490 years, neglected keeping God's Sabbath year, that was one of the reasons he brought them into captivity to begin with. Now, we read about that in Second Chronicles 36, which details the destruction of the temple and the Babylonian captivity. And it says in Second Chronicles 36, this was done to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she, keep, she would keep the Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So think about it. 490 years, failure to keep the sabbatic year equals 70 Sabbath years. So God, by taking them into Babylon for 70 years, is saying, in other words, you owe me 70. And he took it out of the land, laying, laying it rest, letting it lay rest for 70 years. 
So they're in Babylon. They could keep the Sabbath. Some of them didn't. But some foreigners who would want to, God said, I would receive them if they keep my covenant. Now it brings up an issue. The question is, is the Sabbath for today? And I've heard a lot of people, well-meaning, say that we Christians need to keep the Sabbath. When, in fact, there's nothing in Scripture, in the New Testament, where New Testament believers are commanded to keep the Sabbath. Jesus never said to do it. The council at Jerusalem in Acts 15, when the stipulations were given to the Gentiles to keep themselves from blood and to keep uh, themselves from uh, sexual immorality and the like, nothing was said, oh, and by the way, you Gentiles, make sure you keep the Sabbath. In fact, Paul the Apostle said, one man esteems one day over all the other days of the week. Another man regards all the days alike. Let each one be persuaded in his own mind. Oh, about a year ago, and I I get at least once a year, someone coming up who is a Sabbatarian saying, "Um, you're breaking the laws of God. And I ask them why. And they say, because you worship God on Sunday, not Saturday. And I say, oh, we worship God on Saturday as well as Sunday. Worship God on Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, every day. Oh, but the Sabbath is special. We keep the Sabbath. And I say, do you really? Oh, yeah, we keep the Sabbath laws. I said, so you keep the sabbatic year? They go, the what? (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's where for one year at the end of seven years, you let whatever you do lay fallow. You don't do any work and you just collect the proceeds. Do you do that? Well, no. What about the Jubilee year? Do you keep that? Well, no. Then you don't keep the Sabbath. Now, if you're persuaded that Saturday is the day to worship, great. Worship on Saturday. If you're persuaded that Sunday is the day to worship, by the way, the New Testament saints often met on Sunday. It wasn't the Christian Sabbath. It commemorated the resurrection. The seventh day celebrated God's finished creation. The first day celebrated God's finished redemption. Hence, the early church met on the first day of the week because Jesus rose on the first day of the week. But let each be persuaded in his own mind. I love how Paul answered the issue. Verse 7, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Now, Jesus quoted this seventh verse when he was cleansing the temple in Matthew chapter 21. He cleansed the temple at the beginning of his ministry and again another time, about three plus years later, at the end of his ministry. And he brings this verse to bear. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. What had happened is they, the religious elite of the Jewish nation in Jerusalem, had turned a place of worship into a marketplace. In the courts of the Gentile is where they were selling these animals for sacrifices at exorbitant prices. Now, think how that would play to a Gentile. 
Think of the idea that a foreigner would get of this approach to God of the Jews by looking around in the courts of the Gentile and seeing a sham, a marketplace. Why would any Gentile be attracted to worship God when in the very place where God is to be represented, he's misrepresented? You see, that's an important concept, is that we gather to worship God, but sometimes unbelievers come and they want to see what we're all about. If in the very place of worship, God is misrepresented, people aren't going to be attracted to God. That's why when we worship, we ought to worship in spirit and in truth. It ought to be real. It ought to be authentic. None of this, well, we got to act cool so that unbelievers think we're as cool as they are. And we have to make it seeker-friendly. Now, please hear me out. I'm not saying be seeker-unfriendly. But worship is all about God. People in the world have enough sense that church ought to be about God. And that it's okay to mention the name of Jesus Christ and sing about the blood of the Lamb and not strike that from any of our hymnology. And when we try to pull one over on them and say, oh, they're going to think we're really cool because we're acting like them, they say, why would I come to church? It's no different than a soap opera or a football game or a concert. And so God was being misrepresented there even in the temple. Did you know that the early church had spies that would come from the Roman government because there were rumors that the church was subverting the Roman government. And so these spies would come in and observe the worship of these people. And so many of their reports were things like, my, how they love Jesus Christ, and my, how they love one another. I wonder if spies came into our assemblies just to see what we're about, what they would say. Now in verse 8, the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel. I love that. God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, Yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. Here's God saying, Israel, if I love your outcasts enough to gather them, I also love all of the other outcasts that you have forgotten. The outcasts of the Gentiles, the foreigners. I love this about God. God is interested in outcasts. Years ago, when Calvary Chapel first started, hippies came. I guarantee you, you went to any other church in Orange County, you wouldn't see many hippies. But they were welcomed here. We were welcomed here. I remember being able to sit on the floor in the sanctuary with my swimming trunks on and my flip-flops after getting out of the ocean, surfing all day on a Sunday and coming for Sunday evening service, caked with salt. And be welcomed. And be able to sing songs of worship. I'd have been an outcast anywhere else. Several years ago in Albuquerque, there was... Um, Sort of a, a metal phenomenon, a hard, heavy metal phenomenon. And a lot of these kids were coming to our church and they didn't quite know where to fit in. And one of these kids who played with uh, Striper for a while uh, came and had a real heart for evangelism. I said, Paul, tell you what, 
why don't you start a metal church on Friday night? He said, a what? I said, a a heavy metal church. He said, I've never heard of such a thing. I said, neither have I, but let's try it. Really, let's just try this thing. Get all your friends together who like this kind of music. I don't like this music. Friday night's a good night because I'm not going to be there. (laughs) You can turn it up as loud as you want. Make sure that Jesus is glorified and use it for evangelism. He had a few hundred kids. You could hear their music on the other side of town. It was so loud, but he, the Lord just blessed it. And we saw scores of these kids with their black leather spiked bracelets, spiked hair, multicolored, come to know Christ. And one of the greatest, most precious scenes to me was an Easter Sunday morning. And I glanced over to my right and there in one of the front rows was a guy in a three-piece suit with his Bible open sitting right next to a kid with spiked hair, spiked armband with his Bible open. And I said, that's cool. (laughs) Jew and Gentile, so to speak. Two different worlds together. Wall of separation is down. God who gathers the outcasts. Now, God speaks in the next several verses in abiding sarcasm, saying, all you beasts of the field come to devour all you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Yes, they are greedy dogs. In Hebrew, it means of strong appetite which never have enough. And they are shepherds who cannot understand. They all look to their own way, every one for his own gain from his own territory. In other words, this group of leaders is self-seeking and self-serving. They're making it all about themselves, feeding and nourishing themselves. Come, one says, I will bring wine, and we will fill ourselves with intoxicating drink. Tomorrow will be as today and much more abundant. Now the watchmen were those guards who were stationed on the walls of a city. Their job was to keep watch, to look out, to see if the enemy was coming, to give a report if there was any threat to the city. They were the sentinels, the sentries. And sometimes in the Bible, prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah were called Israel's watchmen. Now, if the watchmen were blind, they couldn't see the danger coming. If they couldn't see the danger coming, they were unable to convey that there was danger coming. They're like dumb dogs who don't bark. Every dog, usually a normal dog, when he sees danger, barks. When something is coming up the drive or driving down the street that agitates the dog, the dog will send out a bark, an alarm. But these were watchmen so engrossed in their own pleasure and so idle at their job, they were unable to warn the nation of the danger that was to come. They're called shepherds as well. Watchmen and shepherds. Shepherds had sort of a twofold duty. 
Number one, they would lead sheep to green pastures. Number two, they would protect the sheep from wolves. That's why David said, Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Now, we know what a staff is. It's about a six-foot-long rod whereby the shepherd would gently, as gently as he could, lead the sheep on the path to green pastures for nourishment. But good shepherds carried with them on their belt a rod, which was a club with nails at the end. It, it was an incentive to keep wolves away. And it was a very good incentive. And so sometimes the shepherd would be leading the sheep gently. At other times, because of the threat of wolves, the shepherd would take out that club and beat the wolves away. That's a good shepherd. And I love that about Jesus. He called himself the good shepherd. And what a good shepherd he was. Teaching, leading his disciples into green pastures. Feeding them with the knowledge of God. And at the same time, protecting them. At one time, the Pharisees came near and started speaking to the disciples. And Jesus walked over and asked, what are you talking to them about? I love that. Inquiring, demanding an account. Wanting to know what these shepherds of Israel were saying to his men. So loving, so protective. In Acts chapter 20, when Paul was on his way to Jerusalem and he stopped in Miletus on the shores there and he met with the elders from Ephesus, he recounted his stay with them and how he loved them and gave them the whole counsel of God. And at the end of his little speech, he said, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to feed the flock of God which he has purchased with his own blood. And then he went on to say, for I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in not sparing the flock. Listen, a good shepherd, a good watchman is called not only to feed with knowledge but to warn sheep of impending danger. Martin Luther said that a preacher should not only be a shepherd, but at the same time should be a soldier. Luther said he must nourish, but at the same time he must defend. And he went on to say he must have teeth in his mouth and be able to bite and fight. You see, that was the problem with these watchmen of Israel, these shepherds who were so into their own comfort that they failed to see the danger that was coming on the nation and warned them. Only Isaiah at this stage, was sounding out a clear warning to these people. Some of them didn't want to hear it. What Isaiah does in this chapter, and now in chapter 57, is he holds up a mirror, you might say, to both the leaders and the people of Israel, saying, look in the mirror, you guys, and see the defects, and learn From the situation you find yourselves in so that you might know why this judgment is coming. I heard about a pastor who did something very um, novel and uh, inventive. He went to pastor a church. He was the second pastor. And the church was very, um, well, they didn't receive him very well. There was backbiting and fighting and people wouldn't come. And um, every time he tried to inspire them with truth and get them involved, they would have none of it. The church continued to shrink. Fights continued to break out. Division abounded. 
Finally, one Sunday, the pastor had enough. And he said, this church is a dead church. And this afternoon at 5 o'clock, we're going to have a funeral service and bury the dead. So come at 5 o'clock for our final service. It's the church's funeral. Well, that made everybody curious, and it was a packed service. The town came out for it. All the old members who hadn't been around for a long time packed that church. They wanted to go to this church funeral and find out what the problem was. And the pastor stood up, and he had a casket at the front of the church. And he talked all about the purpose and the meaning of the church and that this church is dead and that there's a reason that the church is dead. And he said, I invite you all now to come forward and pay your last respects to the deceased. And you'll see why this church is dead. Well, now they were curious. They all lined up and marched down the road to look in the casket to see a dead church. As they came to the front and they gazed in the casket, the pastor had positioned a little mirror just perfectly stationed so that each person could see himself or herself. That's what Isaiah is doing. The nation, he said, is in its death row. And he holds up the mirror to the leaders in 56 and now to the general population in 57. He says, the righteous perishes. No man takes it to heart. Merciful men are taken away while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. He shall enter into his peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. The righteous die oftentimes completely unnoticed. No fanfare. And unbelievers don't take it to heart. And in this case, they didn't realize that those righteous people were being removed to be kept from the future calamities that would come on the nation. They would enter into peace. They would be preserved from the coming judgment, from the hassles, from the pain that the nation would go into. They'd be in peace while others would remain alive and go into captivity or be killed. The righteous perishes and no man takes it to heart. Death is certainly the great equalizer. You've heard it said, I'm sure, many times before, that the statistics of death are amazing. Every one out of one dies. People are dying who've never died before. It's happening all over the place. And death is the great great equalizer. The Bible says rich and poor all alike face death. But from a pastoral perspective... I'll tell you that people face death differently. You can see it in their eyes at a funeral service. Some will come with great joy, sadness, yes. Pain, sorrow, certainly. They miss their loved one. But there's hope in the midst of sorrow. And when you tell them about heaven and the glories to come, the heads nod, they get it. There's joy in the midst of sorrow. You can look in other faces, you draw a blank. They don't get it. They don't track. There's fear behind those eyes. Death is the great equalizer, but people face death differently. Before I was a Christian, when I was a teenager and I was in my experimental phase, I was down in Mexico with a buddy 
who told me about astral projection. And he uh, had me convinced that I had lived several past lives and that um, uh, you could soul travel and you could get these spirits to tell you about your past lives. And when we were down in Mexico in Mazatlan, a message supposedly came to us that we were going to die on the train ride back to the United States. That didn't set well with me. I went to my Spanish teacher and I said, I don't want to ride the train back. And he said, why? I said, it's too complicated. If I told you, you wouldn't understand. I had fear facing death. Not that I'm looking forward to dying anytime soon. I know that I'm being the presence of God, but I enjoy life. I enjoy serving the Lord, but the fear of death is gone. There's confidence now because of the great promises of God. I remember um, going to a priest after that incident in Mexico, and I asked him about heaven, because I was searching, remember, and I asked him, um, I, I want to know if I'm going to heaven. And I remember him telling me, well, you really don't know for sure until you die. And I said, well, Pardon me, but isn't that a little bit too late to find out I was wrong? (laughs) And in discovering what the Bible says, that you can know for certain. For we know, said Paul, that if this earthly body, this tent is taken down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Well, in verse 3 to verse 13, God rebukes their idolatry and unbelief through the prophet. Notice how the word but begins the sentence in verse 3. In other words, in contrast to the righteous entering into the peace in verses 1 and 2, there's a change of subject. But come here, you sons of the sorceress, you offspring of the adulterer and the harlot, Whom do you ridicule? Against whom do you make a wide mouth and stick out the tongue like little kids mocking and ridiculing? Are you not children of transgression, offspring of falsehood, inflaming yourselves with gods under every green tree, saying, or excuse me, slaying the children in the valleys and under the clefts of the rocks? Among the smooth stones of the stream is your portion. They, they are your lot. Even to them have you poured a drink offering. You have offered a grain offering. Should I receive comfort in these? On a lofty and high mountain you have set your bed. Even there you went up to offer sacrifice. The children of Israel, the children of Judah, had committed sexual immorality, as well as spiritual immorality. They had committed spiritual harlotry. And you often find uh, that the Bible speaks of idolatry as playing the harlot, going out with another lover, so to speak. Now, the worship of the Canaanites was very sensual. They derived their worship from the Babylonians. And uh, when the Canaanites wanted to worship, they worshipped under 
groves of trees where there were images cast of gods and goddesses. And there were prostitutes, shrine prostitutes, who would take money for the upkeep of the shrine of these groves. And the children of Israel were enticed by this type of worship. They committed the harlot. And, as intimated in these verses, they also offered their children to Molech, burning them in the fire. Hard to imagine that somebody would take a child, their own flesh and blood, their own infant, and place it in the red-hot or white-hot molten arms of a false god and call that acceptable worship. But that's how perverted it got. Sacrificing innocent children. King Ahaz did that. King Manasseh of Judah also did that. And many of the people followed suit. Also, verse 8, behind the doors and their posts, so publicly and privately, people devoted themselves to idols and immorality. You have set up your remembrance. You have uncovered yourself to those other than me. You have gone up to them. You have enlarged your bed, made a covenant with them. You have loved their bed when you saw their nudity. You went to the king with ointment and increased your perfumes. You sent messengers far off and even descended into Sheol. You are wearied in the length of your way. Yet you did not say there is no hope. You have found the life of your hand. Therefore, you are not grieved. Here's the picture. They seem to be exhausted because of the way that they took. He says in verse 10, you are wearied in the length of your way. Their way was hard and yet they refused to give up. It's like they get their second wind and go further and further into wickedness. Sort of like a sin marathon, I guess, where the endorphins kick in and they're ready to go at it and keep going. They're wearied by the way that they chose, yet at the same time, therefore, you were not grieved. In the verses preceding verse 10, it mentions that they sinned in the valleys. That's where they offered their infants to Molech. And then they also sinned up on top of the mountains, the hills, the groves. They made a more public display of it. In their homes, in the valleys, and then on the mountaintops. Now that shows you the progression and the destructive nature of sin. You might say the addictive nature of sin. You might start in a hidden place. Nobody knows. Nobody sees. You just entertain thoughts in your mind. But pretty soon, you're emboldened to take a further step. To cross a line you never crossed before. To even do things publicly. Even though the risk of being caught, of being found out is there, you become bolder and bolder to take it from the house now to the valley and then eventually to the mountaintop, no longer feeling conviction any longer. If you think of our nation and what we allow on public broadcasting, you get a picture of that. You see, back in 1946, what we would consider today as a wholesome film hit the screens. It was the Christmas classic with Jimmy Stewart, It's a Wonderful Life. Remember the film? It's a Wonderful Life. (laughs) Did you know that that film, originally the script was censored 
because of words deemed unsuitable for the public audience. Words like lousy, jerk, and the derogatory term garlic eaters. That you couldn't put that on television. You can't put lousy on television. It's, it's a bad word. Now you think about where we've come from that time till today. The degenerative public crossing of so many lines when it comes to the media. And what happens to a nation can happen to an individual as well. I read an interesting story I brought with me about how an Eskimo kills a wolf. This was given by Paul Harvey on his radio program. He said, first of all, the Eskimo coats the knife blade with animal blood and lets it freeze. Then he adds another layer of blood and then another until the blade is completely concealed by frozen blood. He fixes the knife into the ground with the blade up. When a wolf follows his sensitive nose to the source of the scent and he discovers the bait, he licks it, tasting the fresh frozen blood, and he begins to lick faster and faster and more and more vigorously lapping the blade until the keen edge is bare. Feverishly now, harder and harder, so great becomes his craving for blood that the wolf doesn't notice the razor-sharp sting of the naked blade on his tongue, nor that his thirst is being satisfied by his own warm blood. His appetite craves more and more until he lies dead in the snow. That's exactly how sin traps. We don't notice it at first. It seems appealing to us but it can take the life. And that's what happened to the nation, and that's what Isaiah is indicting them for. And of whom have you been afraid or feared that you have lied and not remembered me nor taken it to your heart? Is it not because I have held my peace from of old that you do not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your works, for they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. But the wind will carry them all away. A breath will take them. But he who puts his trust in me shall possess the land and inherit my holy mountain. It's because God held his peace. He didn't respond immediately to their sin that they misread that as either God didn't exist or God was condoning their action. God doesn't care. And so they kept doing it. In Romans chapter 2, Paul may have had this in mind when he writes, Do you despise the riches of his goodness, his forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance? They misinterpreted the patience, forbearance, and long-suffering of God. He held his peace. He didn't immediately respond. He didn't immediately judge. And they misread that as God condoning their sin. And one shall say, heap it up, heap it up, prepare the way, take the stumbling block out of the way of my people. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit 
to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Boy, there's a lot in that verse. We don't have time to exegete it. That's a whole sermon. But a few things to notice. Number one, God is holy. That is, God is other than his creation. He is transcended above his creation. He is separate and pure. And he says, be holy, for I am holy. Then we understand that God loves to fellowship with people. Uh, We read, with him who has a contrite and humble spirit... Jesus said in the book of Revelation to one of the seven churches, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone will hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in and have fellowship with him, sup with him and he with me. God loves to fellowship with people. That's why we are created, to establish a relationship with him. But this verse also tells us that in order to fellowship with God, it takes humility, a humble And a contrite heart. In chapter 6, when Isaiah saw God, you remember the story. He didn't say, wow. He said, whoa, is me. Not, wow, I'm going to go on Christian television and tell people that I saw God. He said, whoa, is me. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the Lord. In seeing God, he saw himself, and at that moment he was cleansed and commissioned. One of the keys of being commissioned, used by God, fellowshipping with God, is humility, having a deep conviction of sin because we see ourselves in the presence of God. One author put it this way, you don't impress the officials at NASA with your paper airplane. You don't boast about your crayon sketches when you're next to Picasso. Um, You don't claim equality with Albert Einstein because you can write H2O. Nor do you boast about your goodness in the presence of the perfect one. God is holy. He is wholly other. He is separate and distinct from his creation, but he loves to fellowship with people. And it takes humility, recognizing that God, through his son, Jesus Christ, paid the price on Calvary's cross. And we come poor in spirit, mourning over that condition and hungering and thirsting after righteousness. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would fail before me and the soul which I have made. For the iniquity of his covetousness, I was angry and struck him. I hid and was angry. And he went on backsliding in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways and will heal him. I will also lead him and restore comforts to him and to his mourners. I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace. To him who is far off and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. So God promises to restore that his anger has a limit. When God is acting in the life of his children, though it might be a judgment, it's always 
not punitive, but corrective. He's seeking to bring us back, to restore us. God doesn't delight in spanking us going, I hope that hurt. But I want to heal you. I want you to learn the lesson to come back. That's the intent. That's the thought here. But the wicked are like the troubled sea. When it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt, there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. What a picturesque description of the wicked life. Never being able to settle down. I was back in New Jersey after, I think it was Hurricane Charlie, and the seas were still churning. The waters were high. And the entire ocean was a beautiful, deep brown from all of the dirt that had been churned up. That's the picture of the wicked. Maybe a better description is when I was going from England to France on the English Channel and the seas were churning up and it was just a hoot to see all these properly dressed English gentlemen and gentlewomen with their heads over the boat because they were sick to their stomachs and they weren't dressed properly for the occasion. Just churning back and forth and up and down. A picture of the wicked. Now, chapter 58 begins uh, the final section of the book of Isaiah. And it's a collection of prophecies, a variety of prophecies that speak of sin and judgment and restoration of the nation. Chapter 58 uncovers the hypocrisy of the nation In that, they were keeping rituals, they were praying, they were fasting, but it was only outward, it wasn't inward. It didn't really change the life. Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet, tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. In other words, Isaiah, part of your commission is to go and stand before these people, my people whom I love, and tell them the truth. Cry out. And Isaiah did. It's been said that sometimes preachers are called to comfort the afflicted and at other times to afflict the comfortable. And that seems to be Isaiah's commission in part of these chapters to afflict the comfortable. And he does that. They seek me daily. They delight to know my ways. He's saying, tongue-in-cheek, as a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God, they ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all of your laborers. So here they were, temple-bound, Obeying laws outwardly, keeping rituals outwardly, didn't touch, didn't affect the life, the inward person. Whenever we worship for show, we are cheapening the very meaning of worship. When we make it all about us, did you see me? Did you notice how fervent I worship? When in reality, worship is all about him. And it seems that in some of their minds, they were thinking they could buy God's favor, getting God to notice them fasting. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist 
of wickedness. You will not fast as you do to this day, as you do this day, to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast that I have chosen, a day for man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? Now, there was only one day where God commanded the children of Israel to fast, and that was the Day of Atonement. In the law of Moses, they called it afflicting the soul. It was a euphemism for fasting. That's the only time God commanded them to do it. However, they could do it voluntarily for personal reasons. And it seems that some of them were doing it. But they they complained nobody saw it. Nobody noticed it. And then to top it all off, they would fast, go through the ritual, but then strike the fist. They get into a fight. It's sort of like a couple, perhaps, coming to church in the morning. Isn't it amazing that the church parking lot can transform a relationship instantly? You know, they they may be fighting on the way to church, scowling and angry looks. Suddenly, they drive into the parking lot, and it's, God bless you. Hallelujah. And then after church, get back in the car. The fighting continues. They were fasting And yet they were fighting, and those two don't go very well together. Somebody once said, if your religion hasn't changed you, maybe it's time for you to change your religion. It was all outward to these folks. God was dealing with the heart. Is this not the fast that I have chosen, verse 6, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out when you see the naked that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Then your light shall break forth like the morning and your healing shall spring forth speedily and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. In the New Testament, Jesus said, and when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites who like to appear like they're fasting to men. They don a sad countenance. He said, when you fast, anoint your face, clean up, look happy. I don't know where, but some place, sometime in church history, we've come up with the idea that grumpiness is next to holiness. That if you're spiritual, you'll be sad. I read something interesting. Oliver Wendell Holmes once remarked, I would have entered the ministry except most of the ministers I know act and look so much like undertakers. How sad. Who wrote those rules? And God says, your fasting should lead you to a changed life. You do it joyfully as unto the Lord, and then you help those who are oppressed. That's the fast that I have chosen and will accept. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of wickedness, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness and your darkness shall be as the noonday. 
In other words, when you fast and pray with the right attitude, you're going to dispel darkness in people's lives. Because now it's not hypocrisy, it's authenticity. Did you know that Mark Twain was raised by a Christian mother and married a Christian wife? But he recounts, you can blame him for not really making correct observations, but he did observe that elders and deacons in the church that he grew up in owned slaves and abused them. And he also remarked that several men of the church that he knew would praise God on Sunday using pious language, but then be dishonest and use foul language the rest of the week. He became so bitter by what he saw that he dropped out of church and in many of his writings even denounced the church. The hypocrisy that people were living with and in those days. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul and drought, strengthen your bones, and you shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Those from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations and you shall be called repairer of the breach, restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and shall honor him not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth, and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. The mouth of the Lord has spoken." So, here's a nation that God had a plan for. God wanted this nation to raise the standard, to shine the light, so that nations who didn't know the Lord would come to know the true God. However, the nation fell from that place. They did not fulfill what God had intended for it but rather were dragged down in worshiping false gods. I guess you might say God wanted Israel to be a thermostat rather than a thermometer. You know the difference. A thermometer simply registers the temperature around it but can't change it. A thermostat, on the other hand, regulates it. That's how God wants us to live. When you're in a place to regulate the temperature, to be a catalyst, a change agent sent out, commissioned by God, sometimes saying things that people don't want to hear, afflicting the comfortable, at other times bringing comfort to the afflicted, being God's man, being God's woman. Let's pray for that as we close. Heavenly Father, what a wonderful commission it is to be a child of the living God and to be sent out. And some of us are sent to banks, offices, hospitals, clinics, law courts, garages, the streets, law enforcement. But each of us has a place, a sphere. Lord, I pray that we, your people, would fulfill the calling you have for each and every life, being what you've intended us to be, shining the light, being the light of the world. 
Lord, I pray the light would shine clearly. Lord, I pray that this week you'd use us in a special way to be your representatives. To do what we do in your name, filled with joy. And thank you, Lord, that you're interested in the outcast. That you've rescued us, the foolish things of this world, to confound the wise. In that we rejoice, in Jesus' name, amen. Shall we stand? Interesting how that so often we have an opinion of ourselves, as did Israel. And when God expresses his opinion of them, far different than what they saw themselves. But that isn't true for just Israel. I think that's a very common thing. That the opinion that we have of ourselves often differs from God's opinion. I should be far more interested in how God sees me than how I see myself. Hard to be honest and look objectively at myself. But what does God see? What does God think? Here they were fasting. But God said, that's not a fast. Uh, They were trying to sort of applaud themselves. But they were not getting any applause from God. Paul tells us we should examine ourselves. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged by God. May the Lord help us to see the truth about ourselves. And it is the word of God that is that mirror that shows us the reality of ourselves. Not as we fantasize ourselves to be, but as we really are. Tonight, maybe the Lord has spoken to your heart about issues in your life where you find you are much like the people of Israel. And what you see by the Spirit of God opening up your heart and your mind and your eyes to yourself, you're not happy with that. You would like to change. That's what God is all about. Affecting changes in our lives to bring us into His image. One that He is well pleased with. These pastors are down here at the front to help you to become everything that God wants you to be. They're here to pray with you. And to agree with you that God will bring forth those changes in your life that he would like to see. So that you would be the man, the woman that God is pleased with. And that God can use in service. So I would encourage you again. As soon as we're dismissed. If you have a need of prayer tonight. You desire that God would work in your life this evening. Come on down and let these men pray with you. 
that you might discover all that God is wanting to do in you, for you, that he might do his work through you. I will serve you because I love you. You have given life to me. I was nothing until you found me. You have given life to me. Heartaches, broken Ruined lives are why you died on Calvary. Your touch is what I long for. You have given life to me. You have given life to me. God bless you. This is the end of this message. If you would like further information on any of our products or to receive our free catalog, contact The Word for Today. The address is P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. Or you may reach us by our toll-free number, 1-800-272-WORD. That's 1-800-272-WORD.